Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... Where we have a monopoly, that means that whoever runs that monopoly has a bigger share of the profit and increased profits are always, always invested in corruption. Always, because that's the business model. A new report by the International Coalition on Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice found out tropical rainforests are under threat. What are the leading causes of destruction? Also, written for Community by Community, how is a new children's book helping First Nations families in WA's southwest to manage a common skin condition? And later in the show... They will also discover Muslim loyalty to Australia. They will discover Muslim contribution to Australia. They will discover Muslim dedication to Australia. Three decades researching the role Muslims played in Australia's war efforts have earned a New South Wales scholar the title of the nation's Muslims Professional of the Year. How have Muslim Australians contributed to World War I and II? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... The Wire continues its two-part investigation. On yesterday's program, we heard how Senator David Pocock, ACT Environment Minister Rebecca Vazzarotti and Ellie Lawless, Executive Director of the ACT Conservation Council, expressed concerns over the proposed housing development of the Lawson grasslands near Belconnen by Defence Housing Australia. As the Minister responsible for the environment, Tanya Plibersek is pivotal in the development decision over the Lawson grasslands, but the expected results of the environmental impact study, which were due just weeks ago, have not yet been released. Additionally, Defence Housing's extensive development plans have been revised downwards and a great deal of marketing material has disappeared from their website. Responding to reporter Hedda Murray, Rebecca Vassarotti, ACT Environment Minister, indicates who has decision-making power over the 145 hectares of native temperate grasslands on the shores of Lake Ginandera. Minister Vassarotti has written to Tanya Plibersek about this matter. Yet, as she said, it does come down to who controls the land. This is critical. Lawson North was once a naval transmission station and the land, which belonged to the Department of Defence, has transferred to DHA. It is not owned nor controlled by the ACT government. The fate of this land ultimately lies with the Commonwealth. But just weeks ago, something unexpected happened. DHA quietly announced a remarkable and significant revision to their plans, now proposing fewer than 150 homes instead of the original 443 on a much smaller area of the Lawson North grasslands. According to the Canberra Times, DHA are citing concerns about potential impacts on biodiversity, heritage values, access and parking. They have until 2025 to provide a new environmental impact statement on this, thereby delaying a decision for another year. This is a great, albeit partial, win for the community. L. Lawless. The new project variation is a response to community pressure 
especially to submissions received in 2022. So it really shows that the power of the people can make significant changes to protect nature. However, community have a long way to go in terms of protecting the whole of Lawson grasslands and will continue to do so. It does appear that the community is frequently at odds with government decision makers and developers. Senator Pocock argues that an environmental protection agency ought to be established with a remit to make these types of decisions based upon the science and the facts. With controversies around the country, and particularly those surrounding Defence Housing Australia's development applications, coupled with weak environmental protection laws and an opaque process at the federal level on how approvals are being made, do things need to change? Ultimately, the decision is going to be made based on these laws, laws that have allowed us to be a global deforestation hotspot, the only OECD country on that list, and to be the world leader in in extinctions. And we now have a government that's committed to no new extinctions. I am urging them um, to make good on that before these new environmental laws come into effect, whenever that is, to start knocking back these sorts of projects now. So, will Australia's federal Labor government trade this critically endangered habitat and the threatened species at Lawson North Grasslands to cross-subsidise housing for defence personnel on the shores of Lake Ginandera? Minister Plibersek was approached for interview but did not respond. I'm Hedda Murray. The final part of our investigation into the Lawson Grassland Defence Housing Development by Hedda Murray. We approached Assistant Minister for Defence Matt Thistlethwaite, who has oversight of Defence Housing Australia jointly with Finance Minister Katie Gallagher for comment, as well as Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek. None were available. This story is produced with the support of the Community Media Training Organisation. A new report by the International Coalition on Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice found out tropical rainforests are under threat. The main reason behind the threat is they're also home to lucrative plants used to produce illegal drugs. Government corruption and legal solutions to replace the plants are also leading causes of destruction, according to the report. The wise contributor from 3CR's Earth Matters in Nam, Melbourne, Judith Peppard, reports. The International Coalition on Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice was set up in February 2023 to bring together people working in drug law reform and the environment movement to raise awareness of how drug prohibition damages the environment and to bring about policy change. Environment activist Clemmie James is the chair of the coalition. Around our planet, there are different areas that can capture more carbon than others. Even though the largest forests on our planet are in Russia and Canada, in terms of the forests that can suck in more carbon than others, they are our tropics. And those tropics follow the equatorial line. And the other thing that follows the equatorial line is the world's drug production um, movement. Enter Neil Wood, a former police officer and undercover drugs operative in the UK, a member of the coalition and the international group Law Enforcement Action Partnership. We are talking about 
interconnected transnational organized crime. We're talking about some of the most powerful organizations on the planet, and they have connections to, to legitimate business and legitimate politics. Neil Wood is looking at how illegal drugs fuel big business that is dangerous for the environment. He argues it is the prohibition of drugs that financially fuels the danger. Well, we have a monopoly. That means that whoever runs that monopoly has a bigger share of the profit. And increased profits are always, always invested in corruption. Always. Because that's the business model. So by trying to deal with this by policing, we are constantly making the corruption more likely and accelerating it. It's much cheaper and cost effective to corrupt a government official or a government than it is a customs official or a border guard or a police officer. So if you have more money, you corrupt higher up the pyramid. And that's what's happening. There are many examples around the world, but a really obvious example is that there used to be lots and lots of drug dealing gangs in Mexico, like most nations. But now they have three super cartels and those super cartels have a bigger GDP than most West African countries. But why are these plants being grown in such environmentally sensitive areas? Put simply, the reasons they are pushed into these frontiers is because they're hiding the production and cultivation of these plants. It's not like growing tomatoes or corn. This can't be done out in the open. This can only be done hidden. And the best place to hide these are up mountains, in jungles and in tropical rainforests. The world's annual climate conferences, or COPs, have attempted to put in place pledges to protect these most fragile of environments. But as Neil Woods suggests, corruption from the money earned from the illegal drugs trade is eroding the potential for protective good governance. The trouble is, many of these equatorial countries do not control their own backyard, which makes those signatures meaningless. For this climate crisis this growing and accelerating climate crisis, the only way we have a chance to deal with this is if we have effective governance. But the trouble is, and this is probably, I would argue, the biggest problem that we've highlighted with this report, is that that governance in many areas has already completely been eroded and with every passing month is being eroded further. In countries like Colombia, the government has attempted to bring in alternatives to illegal crops, but this has come with its own problems and hasn't protected the threatened environment. A point made by one of the co-authors of the report, researcher and activist from Colombia, Dr. Diego Andres Lugo Vivas. I think everybody knows that the most important ally for Colombia in this war on drugs is the U.S. So Colombia has been following uh, orders uh, from the U.S., I might say too from the United Nations. And when we have these substitution policies, they are oriented towards the replacement of illicit crops toward illicit crops. So what I try to do is to analyze the toxicity and the toxic burden associated to those new legal activities. That is the first issue. And the second one that I study is large-scale extraction. And when it comes to extraction, it's not just mining he's referring to. Two different forms of extraction. The first one is mining, large-scale mining. To the extent that is legal, it is sold as a way of promoting new development outside the illegal world. That more than mining, it is the extraction of monocrops. It's a large-scale cultivation of monocrops that are flooding the 
the countryside. Sugarcane is one of those, and palm oil is another one. Meanwhile, Neil Wood is convinced that until the issue of prohibition is tackled, funds will continue to be used to corrupt officials to act in ways that don't help the environment. You can corrupt entire governments with the value from the cocaine trade. That's not talking about the other drugs. That's not talking about all the cannabis which gets grown and shipped out of Latin America. That's the cocaine trade. And you can pay off your government officials, which is expensive, and you can increase your profits with this other kind of crime which is causing damage to the environment. Neil Wood from the International Coalition on Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice, speaking with 3CR's Judith Peppard. You can listen to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. Thirty years researching the role Muslims have played in Australia's war efforts have earned a New South Wales scholar the title of the country's Muslim Professional of the Year. Dr David Javi Havarik was determined to break down the misconceptions over the ethnic makeup of men and women who served Australia. So how have Muslim Australians contributed to World War I and II? It's the question National Radio News reporter Amy O'Halloran started asking Dr Havarik. This is a wonderful question, and I have to tell you that I'm expecting my new book to be published in London soon about uh, involvement and contribution of Australian Muslims to Australian military forces, which is really a great project, uh, and I found many Muslims, you know, in accordance to the statistical data who took part in Australian military forces, and they were of many different uh, ethnic backgrounds. It includes also descendants of Muslim soldiers. So we can talk about, let's say, 200 uh, Muslims and, de- and their descendants who took part in military forces. Yeah, that's that's definitely a whole lot more than people like originally imagined. I've spoken to some people, I, I, and they were I even to... shocked that they that they even participated in the wars. Yes, you are correct. It is little known or almost unknown or rather unknown story about the contribution of Australian Muslims to uh, Australian military forces. Again, it is a wonderful project and uh, it took me so much time and effort to produce uh, the book. I hope lots of people read your book because you spent three decades doing all that research. Now, can you actually tell me a little bit about the research, break down your work and the progress over the years? Oh, yes. I spent several years, uh, I would say, full-time and overtime research. Saturday and Sundays usually were as Monday and Tuesdays and, and other days of weeks. So because I was fully dedicated, uh, I wanted to produce something really unique because this is unique topic, a noble topic which really deserved dedication. So I traveled across the nation. I visited many places. I went to different cities, visited many libraries, did research in Australian National Archives, uh, National Library, different museums, RSL clubs. Uh, I met uh, representatives of different uh, ethnic groups, different uh, communities, visited mosques, visited uh, uh, historical societies. And I also visited a number of cemeteries uh, in different parts of this wonderful country. 
I bet you met so many people and saw many wonderful things, and it would have taken you everywhere. And it is really, I have to sorry, it is exciting time, really exciting time. You know, I dedicated my heart, my my spirit, my soul. You know, to do this uh, in the scholarly way. So I use uh, references which which were uh, hardly available at, uh, uh, during my research. You know, when I say the references, I mean on literature, referring uh, to literature. Uh, however, I, uh, I found amazing data, and I spoke with descendants of uh, Muslim soldiers. They told me remarkable stories, touching stories. Can you give me an example of one of those stories? I would really like you to paint a picture of um, what these guys like made in terms of a contribution to to winning the war. There are many stories, you know. It's hard for me to pick up one or two or three or, or ten of them because they're all, you know, in different expressing uh, Australianness and uh, dedication to, to Australia. But I can tell you uh, that some lost their life the most difficult battles. You know, when I say battles, it means also in First World War and Second World War. It's great that you finally put light to a situation that has never been had any light shone on it before. And how do you hope your work will change people's viewpoints? Do you expect people to find a new colour about these wars? I think they will discover a more multicultural mosaic when when they read my book. They will also discover Muslim loyalty to Australia. They will discover Muslim contribution to Australia. They will discover Muslim dedication to Australia because they are Australians. Religious belonging could be like a part of life within community or even at large at society. But contribution is something what link equally all Australians because when they fought for Australia, color line or religious belonging disappeared. They fought for all for one and one for all. So they were united in, in their aim to defend the country. Dr David Javi Havarik from Charles Sturt University, ending the report by National Radio News, Amy O'Halloran. A new children's book was launched in Western Australia's southwest to help First Nations children and families understand a common skin disorder. Eczema is widespread amongst children globally and incidences are growing in metropolitan communities. Research has identified up to 20% of First Nations children in urban areas are affected by the condition. Aboriginal project officer at the Telethon Kids Institute, Jacinta Walton, says Carl Tackle's eczema was collaboratively developed to address a knowledge gap in the skin health needs of the Kulunga community in urban areas. The overarching project is the Kulunga Mudich Healthy Skin Project. It's the first ever co-designed research service Australian study to describe skin health for urban living Aboriginal Kulunga or children. The idea of the study came about back in 2019 because there had been a lot of research into remote and rural communities' skin health, which was great and has informed some wonderful resources to support families from those areas with improving skin health. There was just a knowledge gap in understanding the skin health needs of the Coolangar living in the urban settings of Western Australia. There's also a link between skin infections and 
acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. We really wanted to prioritise understanding more about what the skin health needs are for urban living children here in Western Australia. And we did a a little bit of a study component to understand the needs and the diseases and, and concerns that were prevalent. We also wanted to improve dermatology services and clinical resources as well, then also create some really strong health promotion resources for community by community. And how does the narrative deliver the main message in a culturally appropriate way? The character himself can be quite relative for Kulungar. He, you know, is a Noongar boy and he his family dynamic is really highlighted in the storybook with his nan and pop as well as his parents and his siblings and his dog as well. Things that he like is, you know, swimming and fishing and playing with his friends. I think that relativeness is really important because they can connect, but also the use of the Noongar language throughout the book. We've used certain words throughout the book strong ones like mudich which means strong a couple of words for arms we've used the words for numbering one to five for the advice that is being given as well just really trying to connect between the community and the narrative you know like you mentioned some of the words are in language and i can see you have a a table of words in language at, at the end of the book so what other benefits do you think this can offer having it written in language it's really important thing to showcase to the wider community Noongar words and help not only our Noongar Kulungar children or Noongar community increase the Noongar language but also non-Aboriginal people to hear hear these words and, and see these words as well and understand what they mean. Community advisory group members really prioritised including Noongar language because they wanted to increase where possible and showcase the Noongar language too. Why do you think it's so important to raise awareness of this skin condition, eczema, for First Nations communities, particularly in the formative years? So eczema is non-infectious, so it's not contagious. However, severe eczema that was affecting half of those that were seen in the study, which means that they were waking one or more times per week, which is tough. Mm -hmm. That can have a real effect on children's performance at school. They can feel tired, boarding. It's good to be able to manage eczema so that you're not getting to that severe stage. But also eczema is an itchy skin condition and any itchy skin condition can open the skin and allows an opportunity for bacteria to enter the body which can cause infection and lead to other health concerns down the tracks. In the storybook there are some really wonderful messages around keeping little bugs and bacteria away. And I understand this is co-designed and researched. How do you think that that broader community and collaboration has perhaps further informed the outcome? Inclusion of community in research is a priority for our team and we know that it has a better impact when you work together. The idea of the storybook, the direction of the project all came from leadership of two elder co-researchers that we have as investigators on the project, also the community members. We have a, a great 
multidisciplinary team and everyone brings different aspects to it and the community members really know what the community want and need and how translation of what we find will make a greater impact. It's really important to include community members in on our research projects. Jacinta Walton, Wilman Nyunga woman and Aboriginal Project Officer at Telethon Kids Institute working on the Kulangar Moorich Healthy Skin Project. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.